Welcome to the Long Thread Podcast about spinning, stitching, and weaving by hand. The podcast is presented by Long Thread Media, publishers of Spinoff, Handwoven, Piecework, and Little Looms magazines. Find us online at longthreadmedia.com. Trainway Silks is where weavers, spinners, knitters, and stitchers find the silk they love. Select from the largest variety of silk spinning fibers, silk yarn, and silk threads and ribbons at trainwaysilks.com. You'll discover a rainbow of colors thoughtfully hand-dyed in Colorado. Love natural? Trainway's array of wild silks provide choices beyond white. If you love silk, you'll love Trainway Silks, where superior quality and customer service are guaranteed. The Anson County Fiber Arts Festival is the place to discover the wonderful world of cotton and hemp fibers and more. You'll find fibers from plant and animal, plus vendors, workshops, a used equipment sale, the fiber shed, and activities for the family. Plus, join the local historical society on a journey of the town's deep roots as a textile center. Visit the fair September 22nd and 23rd at their inaugural event in historic Uptown Wadesboro, North Carolina. For more information, visit AnsonCountyFiberArtsFestival.com. I'm your host, Long Thread Media co-founder Ann Merrow. Dara Lancaster is a handweaver and teacher who's best known for helping her students turn their handwoven fabric into tailored garments. Daryl, thanks so much for being with me. It is a pleasure, and thank you for asking me. Well, the pleasure is mine. I have to say that in many people's minds, you are the bravest weaver they can think of because you cut your handwovens and sew them. And in fact, sewing is such an important part of your work. How do you get so bold and what do you think other weavers should know? This is going to sound funny, but it is really important to remember that no matter what we do in the studio, no one will die. And and I say this to my students as they're terrified to cut. And I said, no one will die here. This is fiber. There's always a way to fix it. There's always a way to go to plan B. And we have a really big alphabet. And the further down the alphabet you go with your plans, the more creative and innovative a piece will become. That said, in the beginning, I started out as a garment maker. I was cutting fabric from the time I was 8, 10 years old. And even before that, making little Barbie clothes. So I had no fear of fabric. It never occurred to me that it could fall apart. And when I started to, when I went to college to study art and found the textile department and found a loom and thought, this is a way to get stuff to sew. (laughs) I mean, I was trained as a conceptual artist that everything had to be communicative and have a point of view and have a uh, some kind of social commentary or statement. I, and that's all very valid. But I wanted to sew because it's what I was comfortable, it's the language I spoke, and it's what I knew best. And I don't think I've ever had a bad day with a sewing machine. And I want to say that, I mean, I've had times when I've been challenged at the loom. But anything in textiles, we're friends. And even though there can be challenging living conditions when you're with a significant other, and I'm talking about fiber <laughs> here, still, it's always worked out. You know, we've always been able to compromise and find a way around it. 
So that said, when I really started, well, first I started as a production weaver weaving for somebody else. That was great because they told me what to do. They gave me the specs. I just executed it. And that was really mm-hmm. important for me to build my technical skill set, you know, how to produce a bolt of fabric in one day. You get really good. You know, and at that point I was really young and I had good shoulders and I had good stamina and it all worked. When I began my own production line, I would weave off 30 yards of fabric and I had to put stuff out there. And I never had a fear of things falling apart because they don't. And I say this to my students and I have I have a number of videos on sewing with hand wovens. And at this point, people will write me, hi, I Googled, I found your name and I want to cut into my hand wovens and I'm terrified. What should I do? And now it's great. I can just say, watch my video because Mm -hmm. you'll find that when you cut into a piece of fabric, any fabric, I don't care what it is, it doesn't magically fall apart on the table. Even slippery rayons that I use all the time, the problem comes in handling. And there are ways to stabilize, sew properly, work with the grain line. These are all things to know. And when people write me and say, what should I do? My answer is always, it depends. Somebody just wrote me and asked, you know, I want to make a shirt. What yarn should I use? You know, this is, <laughs> it depends. Where do you mm-hmm. live? Yes. What kind of shirt? You know, are you talking about hand-woven fabric? Are you talking about, you know, a man's button-down shirt? Are you talking about a, you know, kind of an oversized? So there's so many variables that in this whole field, there is not one right answer. And so I love when people think I'm brave. No, I, it's not brave. <laughs> Back in college, we used to have a mentor um, in a in one of the clubs that I belonged to. And I was a freshman and sophomore without a car, and she would drive us around into town if we needed something. And she was actually a nun, which was just totally hilarious to the picture. And I remember she'd approach these intersections, and this is New Jersey, very crowded, and she'd say, mm-hmm. Sister Fran, no guts, no glory. And those <laughs> words stuck in my head. Still today, I was driving through an intersection that her voice came at me. No guts, no glory, which is sort of how you have to drive in New Jersey. Yes. <laughs> but this is how I've approached my life as a hand weaver. You know, how do you know if it's going to work or not until you try? And then when it's not working the way you want, this is where you get creative. I never assume that it's the fault of what I'm working in. I assume it's my lack of knowledge or skill set. So the game here is to up my game, find a way to make it work. And that has been what's the most compelling part. I mean, I've been weaving since the early 70s, and I've never found that I've gotten bored with the process because there's so much more to explore. I can't really say that about sewing because there's pretty much nothing I haven't sewn, although this is Hmm. a sidebar. I started volunteering at the Shakespeare Theater of New Jersey. I'm a stitcher in their costume department. Just a volunteer thing. And I have good skills, but I was never a costumer. So I've had to learn a whole new set of skills sewing garments that were not part of my repertoire. They love my skills, 
you know, and they they tease me. They say, we save all the stuff that nobody here wants to do, like hemming silk charmeuse, <laughs> which isn't even something that I'm skilled at. I work with hand wovens. I work with things that respond to me. But still, there's a common vocabulary in garment making and in hand weaving that when you've done it enough, there's a trust. So, you know, I hope that that stays with me. Trust the medium. Trust the fabric you just wove. It'll be okay. I think one of the things that is a little intimidating about sewing your handwovens is that it can really show your skill or your challenges in two different areas. There's what if I cut this badly or sew it badly? And then there is what if my fabric is sleazy? And then there's like, what if I've mismatched? You know, I have this fabric that I totally love, but it's set at eight ends per inch and I want to make something that should be really fine. Right. I've taught for years in guilds and art centers, you know, Harrisville and Seavers and guilds. And I would teach this five, six, seven day retreat, depending on the venue. And people would come with their handwoven fabric and make a garment, whether it was their pattern or my pattern, it didn't matter. Mm-hmm. People would write me ahead of time and they would say to me, what should I weave? Tell me what to weave so that I can sew. I said, it's actually doesn't work that way. My job <laughs> here is to not tell you what to make the, to make the perfect garment because you don't learn anything that way. My job in a class of 12, 15, whatever, is for you to bring what you wove that made you happy. My job is to teach you how to make it work. And a class of 12 or 15 with all these different kinds of fabrics would really learn from each other. Okay, you don't have enough fabric because you did a hand-painted warp with no repeat. We can't get anything to line up and it's only 18 inches wide and you're wider than, you know, a doubled back. Okay, so we have to go to plan B. What else did you bring? Oh, wait, you've got some black silk jacquard over there. Could we? Would you mind? You know. <laughs> I mean, this, mm-hmm. it is amazing to me how a class can group together and it always works. Okay. I think I only had one person in all, and this, I, I remember this. She was a Sayori weaver. And I, you know, I genuflect to Sayori weavers. It's a great skill set. It's a great philosophy. I just actually experienced Sayori weaving when I went to Japan in May. And, you know, it was amazing to watch the women teaching this. But in a Sayori philosophy, stability in the cloth is not a primary goal. It is about self-expression. And however that comes out is fine. Mistakes are celebrated. Matter of fact, the warp that I wove on had a mistake in it intentionally, which I will tell you made me completely crazy. But (laughs) (laughs) it was a Sayori weaver who came to my class with a beautiful piece of fabric. It was creative and amazing. And there were spots where it was four picks per inch. And she wanted to make a long jacket, just a plain jacket set in sleeves. And I said to her right up front, this fabric is really sleazy for this purpose. It's not sleazy in the context in which you were working, but for the end product. And I said, and typically what I would have you do is back it. 
because there's always that option, you know, is to stabilize what you have that doesn't work for the purpose in which you want to do. You want to make this silhouette, this fabric isn't quite up to it, but we have ways. Mm -hmm. So um, the problem was that she lived in Texas. And backing oh. something with a poly knit stabilizer wasn't really realistic. Mm -hmm. And she didn't want to do that. So we had to do extra care in how we finished the seams because they were really ravelly, or they would be. But, you know, I, I showed her ways to get it together. And I said, so what's going to happen here is that I can't guarantee that this piece will last your lifetime. And it will probably grow and sag. But that's all part of the philosophy of what you wove anyway. That's and true. so it was a great compromise and it was great. You know, we got the piece together. It was beautiful on her. I loved the picture. But again, in all of what we do, especially with garment construction and hand weaving, what is the bigger picture here? Mm -hmm. And how can you detour whenever you hit a roadblock because you will constantly. And see, those are the times when I am at my best. Um, because I don't look at them as roadblocks. I look at them as, ooh, let's go on a new scenic route because that way is closed. Now, you talk about the chemistry that happens in a class where people help each other and the ways that you can troubleshoot. But another important aspect of what you're doing is, first of all, you mentioned your YouTube channel where you're giving people information and, and they can write back to you occasionally in the comments. But for the mm -hmm. most part, you have to anticipate what they're going to ask. And you also have a line of patterns mm -hmm. that specifically for people who are weaving to have a successful project. Right. I see a lot on social media. People ask, I want to start sewing my hand wovens. What patterns do you recommend? This is general. I lurk. I never, ever give guidance <laughs> on social media. Mm -hmm. Right. And you can have it for free if you go to my YouTube channel. But you're choosing to watch. I don't want to get into a conversation on social media about opinions about how to do things. When you ask me, I will tell you my 40, 50, 60 years of experience in doing this. And if that works for you, great. If it doesn't work for you, there are other options out there. That said, COVID was probably one of the biggest blessings in my life. There were a lot of circumstances that led up to it. One, I was getting really tired of traveling. It was killing me. You know, I'm almost 70 years old. And the last trip I took was to coastal Oregon, and it was March of 2020, and I had 10 days down the coast of Oregon stopping, 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 stopping. And all of that had to be pre-shipped to each location. I had to plan the materials, the supplies that each group would need. Um, the planning took weeks, the shipping ahead, because you had to get to the West Coast in time, and I remember talking to one of my hostesses, which one I don't remember at this point, but I talked to her and I said, when do you know when it's time to stop? You, because you book so far in advance. I was already booked into 2022 at that point. This was 2020. And she said to me, you'll know. It just, the universe tells you. I barely made it home from that trip because the next week, everything shut down. Everything was canceled. And, you know, we thought a couple of weeks and then, you know, another few things got canceled. And, and then people started thinking, well, let's talk about booking next year. And I said, you know, no. Good thing, because this went on for like three years. But in that, 
I happened to, for other reasons, have my daughter here, you know, and she was at a standstill in her life. I hired her and we decide, I put her on a online class for learning how to use Adobe Illustrator. And she pretty quickly picked it up. And we had coincidentally scanned all of my patterns, all 12 of them, into a flatbed scanner mm -hmm. the November before, just because we happened to be at my sister's and she was an architect and she had this. It was only for me to have a digital file in case something ever happened to those patterns. But we had them. Mm -hmm. And so I said, I'm going to launch these patterns because I don't want to do this anymore, but I don't want my experience to die with me. Mm -hmm. It is my gift to the community who has supported me for these last 40 years. It was very quickly that we understood that the hand-weaving community is not as savvy as the sewing community as far as download patterns. I mean, and I get requests from the sewing community, are your patterns camera-ready, meaning do they project from the ceiling right onto your fabric so we cut them out? Holy That's smokes. a thing in the sewing world. Wow. I have trouble getting weavers to figure out where they put the download mm -hmm. on their computer. So it was clear to me that I had to do a video to show people, this is what you do. Step one, figure out where you put the download, you mm -hmm. know, and then here's what it looks like. And here's how to print it. And here's how to make sure it's printed to the right size. And here's how to put it together. And then it just snowballed from there. And my daughter and I had a weekly thing. I wrote the script she directed it, she filmed it, she edited it, she went online and learned how to use in another class how to use Adobe Premiere, which is the editing software. And she was brilliant at it. You know, the beginning ones were a little choppy in that she was new at the editing process and, and I was trying to read off papers on music stands all across <laughs> the room. We since went to a teleprompter that sits right, right under the camera and I have we, we got much better at it. But by making those videos, I could say exactly what I wanted to, and it was recorded in its entirety on that specific topic, and I could show samples and examples. And now, if somebody were to ask me to come and teach someplace, it's a lot harder. I wouldn't do it because all of that information is now in a concise place. As a matter of fact, now one of my goals is to pre-record my lectures. I have one, the oh. one on leftovers now that, although I don't post it, I have a couple of guilds who have purchased the rights to show it for a guild seminar uh, at a considerably reduced rate because I'm not there. <laughs> and and I've been told it's hilarious. People love it. One guild gave me a standing ovation. I don't know. I wasn't there. But it's great <laughs> to be able to leave that information but have control over the way I deliver it. Mm -hmm. And right now, my daughter and I are planning to do a studio tour in a multiple part on the YouTube channel because people have asked, you know, especially the weaving studio behind me where I yes. have 64 looms all in use. It's pretty cool. Six, all 64, in use? All in use. Yeah. And that, that sort of was a long story. But anyway, I did that answer your question? Uh, you know, I have a line of patterns that came about and a whole group of videos that explain how to put them together. I will say that when you sew garments, any pattern will work. Mm -hmm. You have to have the skill set to make it work. Right. But patterns are patterns. The hardest part is to get it to fit. Yes. That's a completely different skill set. 
And even when I teach remotely, because I still do, I will teach workshops remotely. I multi-day wardens, whatever. Mm-hmm. And I, ca- I will have people come into the studio flying from the country one or two at a time. I'll put them up. I'll feed them and they can work with me privately. But I won't take my show on the road anymore. But getting the fit, that's a little more challenging through Zoom because I've got to have somebody that can help me see, you know, right. holding a tablet while they turn around and I can see where the problems are. And then communicating how to make those alterations because I can't show that. That's a challenge. But any pattern, once you get it to fit you, you can turn into a garment as long as the fabric that you have is suitable for that silhouette. Mm -hmm. If it's not, can you make it suitable or should you try a different silhouette? I mean, people brought fabrics to class boiled wool. You know, that's a thing. We make garments out of animal skins. Anything is possible. Right. So my patterns, why they're different is that mm-hmm. it's not that the pattern works better than anything for hand-woven fabric. It doesn't matter what the pattern is. My directions, which are supplemented with, you know, for this step, you're going to do this, but here's a video to back it up. Mm-hmm. My patterns are specifically designed for hand weavers to make that garment from their hand-woven fabric. Because there are some specific challenges. You yes. know, you mentioned width. Hand weavers are, are typically not making fabrics quite as fine as, I mean, some people are. Right. Not as fine, not as wide. Most commercial cloth now is 60 inches wide. So mm-hmm. you can cut three quarters of the garment, depending on how, how full-bodied you are, you can cut three quarters of the garment all the way across. I mean, you know, I can make out of three quarters of a yard of a 60-inch wide fabric, I can make a jacket. But... Not in hand woven. And so while my patterns give not only the yardage requirements for commercial fabric, but the yardage requirements, if you're a hand weaver, 18 inches wide, 24 inches wide, 32 inches wide, you know, I give these, these ranges. And, and it depends on how wide the pattern is, because it depends on your size, what you can get out of which width. So, mm-hmm. so the amount of time I spent with a cutting board trying to line things up and figure <laughs> out because I didn't do it all digitally. I just sat and figured it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it was a challenge. And, and now I like to play around and combine my patterns and see, oh, I like that. What of my patterns can I put together to get that silhouette that I just saw at the theater at intermission? Right. So I'll make one up and people will say, do you have the pattern for that? No, but it's a combination of the 200 jacket with the 1700 tunic sleeve, which is drop shoulder. You can easily put those together. And I will do a video on that, but it would be very wrong for me to say that people are lazy because they're not. If you're in the hand weaving community, you are not lazy by any stretch of the imagination. But there is an overwhelming sense, and it's a lot easier to have when you don't have a lot of experience, say the project is laid out in Handwoven Magazine. Here's all the specs. This will work for you if you follow the directions. Here's my pattern. If you follow the directions, this will work. When you get into combining patterns, it Mm -hmm. is trickier, especially if you don't have that skill set. Yes. And there are some risks involved. There's a, a weaver and spinner I know who says, about spinning, you have to remember that not every yard is precious, but every yard of hand spun and every yard of hand woven 
can, can be very different things. Well, it is. And and here's something that I think is super important for me from the beginning. And I just saw this recently on a social media post. Someone, someone wrote, I want to make a shirt. What should I do? Mm-hmm. When you start out with the goal, whether you're a hand spinner, you know, I want to make this. So you need to get the raw materials to fit that goal. Mm-hmm. I have never... Well, I'd say, I won't say never because in my production years, I had to have a goal. I needed X pieces out of X yardage for the booth. But when I'm talking about now in in the past, say, 35 years or whatever, each of the processes that are involved in what I do, whether it's dyeing yarn, whether it's shopping, even shopping for yarn, mm-hmm. I buy, and I've always done this, based on uh, what's available and I would say cheap or like, what sale are we having? I'm at a conference. Ooh, what's the show special? Ooh, um, this email just came in my box. And there's any number of places that have specials, $6 a pound. Ooh, let's get some of that. I fill the stash because it's a process that I enjoy. I have no idea what I'm going to do with any of it. None. <laughs> Which means I have I love quite the stash. <laughs> yes. That's great. It's potential. Right. It's all potential. And so the next step with, I, and I have a lot, I have a ridiculous amount of white yarn or natural yarn that's all for dyeing. And when I dye yarn, it's usually through the winter because I want color in my life. And every morning it's cellulosic. So I fill the pot with a bunch of cellulosic skeins. And then whatever color I grab in the cabinet, I dump that in and that's what we get. And there's, I have no plan. I have no rhyme or reason. But I end up with lots and lots of small skeins that are kind of maybe dyed together or they go with this and they might go with that. And these kind of coordinate because they were in the same pot, but they were different yarn. When I'm in the mood to weave or try something, or I typically do yardage because unless it's project specific, like I saw this really cool draft in webs or something in hand woven that I want to give it a try because I'm curious, that's project specific and I'll follow the directions because I want to learn from it. But Mm -hmm. when I'm just randomly grabbing stuff, I will design yardage because I have no idea what I'm going to do with it, but most likely clothing. And I have the stash here to do that with, but I have no idea what it ultimately will become. And so I weave to the yarn that's in my hand. I select what I'm going, the path I'm going to take based on the inspiration of what's right in front of me. And sometimes when I really want to do something, but I don't have an idea, I go randomly grab stuff off the shelf, narrow my possibilities, put it on the table in front of me and say, okay, This is who we're playing with today. What can we do with it? And sometimes I will sit on it for a week and just keep coming back and changing my mind, taking a piece out, adding a piece. But it's how I work. And again, I don't know what width. I don't know what length. It depends on how much yarn is in front of me. That actually kind of reminds me of something that uh, you used to contribute to Handwoven, which was these amazing forecasts. And and the forecasts would include color Uh um, and sketches, but they were also included different textures. Yes. Is that a similar approach or how did you come up with those? How did I come up with the forecasts? Yes. Yes. All right. So back in the day when I was your features editor, 
Yes. Madeline, who I will tell you is one of the most delightful people I have ever worked with in this field. She was a joy as an editor. Madeline ended up, we had this great relationship and she would get these ideas and she would throw them at me and say, can you write on this subject? And I'd say, I don't know. Sure. Let me look into it. Sidebar. I remember the most fun. We had two that were the most fun that stood out in my mind. One was the apron article. She said to me, write an article on why we don't use aprons anymore. But they did a photo shoot in Jane Patrick's kitchen. It was sort of an I love Lucy moment that completely trashed her kitchen. There was flour everywhere, the <laughs> expressions on her face. It was one of the funniest things. We howled for a year over that one. That picture is actually in the shacked office. And the way she, the way Jane tells it, you know, she knew there was going to be a photo shoot, but she came home to find that they had trashed her kitchen. So some of those were fairly authentic. Okay. I, I didn't get that part. I didn't get that part. But the other one is that Madeline and I were talking about that, you know, in publishing and you go through these periods, but readership was falling. The weaving community was getting older. What could they do to up their readership? And I was joking. And I said, well, Madeline, you can't sell anything unless it has how to lose weight on the front cover. <laughs> and she said, yes. can you figure that out and write an article on it? <laughs> So I did. And I think the cover said, you know, how to something about how to how to even lose weight at the same time or something. Lose weight, reduce stress, I believe. And it was great because weaving is such a physical skill, especially when you're working on a large loom. There's a 54 inch, 12 shaft, solid rock maple loom behind me that at my age is really, I have to weave double footed because I just can't lift those, those shafts. Probably in my 20s, I could. My daughter has no problem. But, you know, weaving can, can be, if you do it, really physical. Mm -hmm. And so I was the best shape I ever was in in my 20s because I was weaving 30 yards a day by hand, not with a fly shuttle. That's mm -hmm. what we do. Anyway, your original question was about the forecast column. Yes. So... Madeline had asked me about looking into the forecast industry and what it's about. And I said, sure. So I started doing all the research. And it was really fascinating to me that the forecast industry, much like we would meet in a conference, you know, of hand weavers, they get together all over the world, different heads of different divisions in different kinds of companies that would all be involved in color. The people who choose car paint, the people who choose bath towel colors, the people who choose interior paint colors. You know, all of these things are chosen well in advance so that manufacturers can then gear up and know what the public may want a couple years down the road. And you think it's not a guessing game. A lot of it is based on where are the Olympics going to be and what will be that cultural influence? Where will the World Cup be and what will that cultural influence be? What's the geopolitical climate at the moment? And mm -hmm. are people afraid? Are they closing in? Do they want colors around them and environments that are protective? Are they breaking forth, say, out of COVID and wanting to go out and celebrate and you know whatever? So the problem is, since 9-11, because everything abruptly changed in the world, because I was writing the forecast at that time. Right. Since 9-11, that changed things drastically because the predictions for two years down the road, it, it all was you know thrown mm -hmm. out because people were desperate to have some kind of sense of security. 
So there was a nostalgia period. People wanted to go back to the safe 1950s and that hazy aqua tones. And then people wanted that environment of the hunting lodge and greenery and surrounded by trees. So it's really interesting to follow the color forecasted for two years down the road and see what they thought people would be thinking. Anyway, mm-hmm. so that was the whole thing. I wrote all about this. And Madeline said, we need visuals. And because this was research, I couldn't really take images off the internet. I mean, that would right. be not realistic. And the day she wrote me that, this was a total coincidence. The middle school art teacher who I was mm-hmm. friends with, who taught my kids, had stopped by after school because she wanted to show me her daughter Jessica's portfolio because she was trying to get into Parsons and study fashion illustration. So she said, would you take a look at her portfolio? You know, I'm looking potentially for people to give recommendations, things like that. And I said, sure. And we stood out on my street in her car and she started showing me her portfolio. And I said, hold that thought. (laughs) (laughs) And I went back to my computer and I said, Madeline, I have the answer. So we bought a couple of illustrations from Jessica, Mm -hmm. and she became the main illustrator for my column, which turned into a column because after I wrote that initial one, Madeline said, well, let's do this a couple times a year. Can you set a forecast for people to play with? Mm -hmm. And it was really interesting because sometimes we would get letters and say, why are you telling me this? Why would I want to know what the forecast is and follow that? And that wasn't the purpose at all. People need inspiration. And I found there were guilds who would say, look at this latest forecast. Okay, everybody in the guild, this is going to be our challenge for this year. Take this forecast and see what you can do with it. We ended up having a May-June issue follow-up that showed what people did with those two forecasts a year. I have never in my entire career had so much fun with a project as I did with that column. There were seven different retailers I worked with. I got to find what they had, what was new. They always let me know what was coming up, what yarns they had. And the problem, and I will tell you, which is ended up being its demise, was it was an expensive column to produce. Now, Pantone, who sets a lot, everybody knows who Pantone is, but they set a lot of the industry standard for color and the communication of color. But they also have a forecast. And people pay heavily for this forecast a couple of years out. But when it comes to the season, once Fashion Week, so Fashion Week for the fall occurs in February, Fashion Week in New York, then the Pantone forecast, (laughs) people see what the fashion is, it becomes available for free. And you can go and download it, look, just go into forecast for whatever the upcoming season is, and you can download it and look at it and basically get the same kinds of information I was putting in the column. And ProChemical, who is a manufacturer of dyes, they actually take the forecast and figure out what dyes they have in what weight of goods concentration in both wash fast acid and fiber reactive dyes will make that color. So there's lots of online resources available. You don't need me to write a column for hand woven. And the point of it, coming back to my original thing, was just a source of inspiration. I love to narrow my parameters. I work best when I'm given a problem Mm -hmm. and my goal is to solve it. 
Um, I am maybe an engineer at heart. I don't know. I didn't have those opportunities back when I went to college. I went to school for art, which is in itself a problem-solving degree. Absolutely. But I find that when I narrow my parameters, take a half a dozen cones of yarn off the shelf, throw in a complementary color, see where it takes, yarn wraps, software, and and then you know, I'm on my way and I'll make edits and changes and I'll think about it and I'll go in and make dinner and I'll come back and look at it and I'll, you know, go do something else and come back and look at it. And I end up in a place that's really creative for me. But it's nice to start somewhere. A couple mm-hmm. of the pieces that I just did recently that I documented on my blog, which I still write, I've got 900 posts since wow. 2008. It's a lot. And I go back and reread parts of it. Some of me says, how did I do this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> how did I have this lifestyle of running all over the country? Mm-hmm. And then some of it is like, wow, I remember when I made that piece and I remember the thought processes behind it. And that was really cool. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so I document a lot of the pieces that I do and, and how they came about. But one of the things that my daughter and I latched onto, which is a sort of holdover from my childhood, is I love to fix puzzles, thousand piece mm-hmm. puzzles. There's always one going in my living room. And it's a kind of social thing. She'll sit down, we'll talk, it's we fix it together. But many of them have posters that show the full image. And some of them, there's one brand in particular that I love, that the posters, the colors, the way the colors are put together are absolutely mind-blowing. And I've done two now where I've taken those posters and extracted out sections, you know, blocked off sections. Mm -hmm. And this is the color sequence that I want to see if I can replicate. And of course, I've got this whole wall of yarn that I've dyed. And it is a wonderful game for me. I wish your readers could see there's a loom behind me where I just finished eight yards of incredibly colorful. It's on my blog. So if you look at one of the last couple of posts, you'll see it. Mm -hmm. But it is an adventure and color is, I'm not afraid of color. I've been using it for so long. I am not afraid of it being muddy. I'm not afraid of it being too much. Color is color. And the older I get and the grayer my hair gets, (laughs) the more color you can use. We're neutral. (laughs) We're right. You know, because here's the thing. No one will die from this. Mm-hmm. And the worst case is it's not your favorite thing. I, I will tell you my most successful garments that I still wear to this day are my favorite pieces were from yardage that I didn't think was that spectacular. But yeah. it's what I did with it. It's what I did in the details of the garment, trimmed it with handmade felt, added couched embroidery floss and lime green. I, I mean, I took one of the not so great pieces of yardage that I made and I to this day is still one of my favorite jackets. So each part of the process, you have the ability to make it even that much better Mm -hmm. when you don't have an initial goal in your head. Because the initial goal means that every choice you make has to get you to that goal instead of letting each part of the process just bloom on its own. But one of the things I noticed, you know, you've talked about trying Sayori and working with someone who was working with a Sayori Mm -hmm. fabric and sort of an extemporaneous approach to the dye pot. But your work is meticulous. Yes. And I, I remember noticing something about how firmly you feel about matching stripes. <laughs> yeah. So there's a there's a combination of of sort of a, a loose approach, but also refinement at the end of it. Right. 
I will tell you a story I've never told anybody. <laughs> I don't know whether it's my Germanic upbringing or eight years of parochial school. But when I went to high school, which was a public high school, after eight years of very strict schooling, wearing a Catholic school uniform, I found an art program in, in a public high school. It was very cool. And one of the teachers, and I will never forget this, she actually gave me detention and made me stay after school. But she told me because I was too constipated. And that is like the words that she used. <laughs> In this day and age, you can never get away with that. But I understood what she was saying. I was so tight and so controlled that all she wanted me to do in this detention, she spread out across the art table rolls of finger paint paper and put blobs of finger paint. And for the entire detention, made me finger paint. <laughs> and it was, it was such a freeing experience. But that said, I am who I am. And... I would make an entire garment with 15 bound buttonholes, all precision, down the front of it and be absolutely in my glory because there has always been something about not necessarily achieving perfection, but wanting it to be right because I know I can do this. It was always a personal challenge, not that I had to please anybody else, although my mom was a tremendous, she was a tailor, and we would sew after school, and she would come in and with a little ruler and check our seams, and where when I tried to do that with my daughter, she'd be like, mom, <laughs> go away. I, on the other hand, if it wasn't right, I would take it out because I could do better. I knew I could. Mm -hmm. And so... When I was doing this Sayori project at this place in Japan, and there was this intentional, and, and I communicated with the woman, I kept pointing to it, and she's like, no, 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 that's on purpose. We got the translator, and they explained that that's, um, that's built in, like this built-in mistake or flaw, it shows you're human, and it's all part of the philosophy. And I'm like, but I could have fixed that. <laughs> I, I could have fixed that. And and it isn't so much that I need to be perfect, but I love the precision. Mm -hmm. Because I've spent so much time doing garments, I know how uncomfortable it is to work with a fabric that isn't up to the task of supporting garment construction details. Mm -hmm. So I know how to make a garment, set it denser than you think. I know or how to weave a fabric for a garment. I know kind of what's going to ultimately work or be more challenging down the road. So there is a tight quality, but it's more built from the desire to not to be perfect, but because I can do better and I want to keep trying. I a perfect example here, I'm doing this project. It's based on a web's complete kitchen project. And it's got mm -hmm. four placemats and a runner and four napkins. And it's a summer winter and it's very precise. There's multiple colors, multiple weft changes. And I did about a half a mat and realized that my beat was not square. It was going to extend too long, which with specific yardage, I knew I wasn't going to come out. And I sat with that for a week and tried to decide what to do. And I said, you know what? What's it going to take? An hour? I took out the entire half mat 
And I made some adjustments. I changed one, tweaked one of the yarns in the weft that had to be doubled up, which is because I had it, you know. Mm -hmm. And I started in again. And I am so glad I did that rather than thinking, oh, well, one of the mats isn't going to be perfect. Oh, well. It's not that I want perfection. It's because can I do better? Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a certain being willingness to take a take a hard look at what you're working on and say, am I seeing what I want to see or am mm-hmm. I seeing what's actually here? Right. And if it's not what you're seeing, how can you can you can you tweak or adjust or try a different weft or I, this happened to me once, and I actually had a friend who is a who's a newer weaver in my guild who doesn't live far from me. And she comes over, and she picks one of my little structos with a structure on it. And we just sit and weave together, and it's really fun. And she's learning a lot, and I have a good friend. She was commiserating with me that she had this warp that wasn't going well. She called it the warp from hell. And I said... <laughs> Why is it the warp from hell? Well, as we talked about it, basically it wasn't beamed properly. So the tension screwed up and things are a mess. And I said, why don't you just pull it forward and beam it properly? And I think the look on her face was like, first of all, that's a thing. And secondly, oh my God, that seems like such work. But really, what are you talking? A bottle of wine and a couple hours to pull it forward and rebeam it properly if you knew what you did wrong. And then it will weave beautifully. Mm-hmm. And so because I'm not afraid that something's not going to turn out, the bottom line here is I'm in it for the journey. I'm in it mm-hmm. for the process. I don't really care what the end product is. I got so many hand woven garments in my closet. You know, there's just not enough years in left in my life to wear them all. <laughs> But the process has always been what's fascinating to me. And if it isn't working, why isn't it working? And can you fix it? Even if it means pulling an entire warp forward and making those adjustments, even if it means rethreading, even if it means reslaying, because the set that we choose isn't always going to be the best one, especially if you're in new territory for an end product that you might want, for example, clothing. And I never really know if I've got the set right until I do a sample and I cut it off and I wash it. And then I can assess, yeah, is this going to work or not? And I sometimes have to reslay. Mm-hmm. So what are we talking? 20 minutes if it's a full width warp? You know, it's just not that big of a deal, especially when process is your goal, not the end product. I think Susan Horton mentioned that someone had said this to her, but it's going to be woven a long time is what she says. I love that. It's going to be finished for a long time. So I wanted to ask you about one thing when I when I was looking at your projects and your patterns on your website. Some of your projects are deliberately photographed to show that they have such drape and movement. And when I think about handwoven fabrics, sometimes I think about, now granted, this is because I don't weave very fine fabrics myself, but I think that sometimes they can seem more rigid mm-hmm. and more kind of boxy. That must be something that you plan for when weaving. Is that something that you advise your students on? I might. A lot of times they'll write me and say, this is what I'm planning. What do you think? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'll usually just say it should be set denser. But 
Yes, that can yield a firm fabric. But I can't remember an instance where someone came into class with a fabric that was too dense, maybe for the silhouette that they were thinking, which case we just switched to a different kind of jacket. But a fabric for garments needs to be stable. Mm -hmm. And I say to people, if you want a finer fabric, use a finer yarn. Mm -hmm. Don't set it looser so you get more fluid. One of the biggest mistakes people make is with tensile. Because if you look at even your set chart, I mean, the master yarn chart that right. Handwoven has, if you look at that, if you look at Webs who sells Tencel and what they recommend on their thing, the sets for Tencel, A2 Tencel, are ridiculously thin. If you were going to do a plain weave scarf, that's fine. But I set my Tencel anywhere from 36 to 40 EPI because... Tencel is slippery as all get out and will even shift within the structure if it's not locked in. And but yet it's very fluid yarn. So you can set it at 40 and still have a fluid fabric. Some of it has to do with what yarns you choose. And I've had people bring in all of it has to do with what yarns you choose. What, yes. what am I saying? <laughs> but it has to do with the set. But I've had people who make so Harrisville Shetland wool mm -hmm. you know and um it's not this it's not merino but people will come in and it will be kind of loose and open and I'll say well how did you finish this they'll say well you know I said wait let me guess in the bathtub tapped it gently and you know, <laughs> like yeah I said yeah you didn't finish this well you didn't mm -hmm. finish it Pull it enough. You didn't finish. It doesn't have body to support what you want to do with it. And I'll make them go to the laundromat. And I mean, the sheer terror on their face. And of course, inside I'm saying, oh, please, dear Lord, <laughs> make this work. <laughs> because I know that they're not going to be happy with what they brought me. Right. And they come back beaming going, wow, this happens a lot with Zephyr, uh, Zephyr wool and silk, right, right, right. because so people will weave it and it's beautiful and it's soft, but it's not stable. You didn't finish it well enough. And it's interesting because I have a lot of scraps left from my production years back in the 80s where I had never taken a workshop with me. So I really didn't know about setting yardage properly. And I've actually taken hunks of fabric that I found up there and stitch around it really well. I throw the whole thing in the washer and dryer to see what would have happened had I really played around with that. Mm -hmm. And I've always been shocked at the results in a very positive way because I never got to push the fabric to see what it was capable of back in the day. You know, yeah. I had deadlines, boom, I did this, I did this, and that was called in a day. And now that's why when you initially weave a test before mm -hmm. you execute yardage, cut it off and... Usually what I'll do is I will cut it into three pieces. Now, it's, I've got width on the limb because it's yardage, but I'll cut it into three pieces. One goes in my notebook. One I will take to the sink and mush it around with some you know, Blue Dawn or shampoo or whatever, just to kind of get a feel for what it does when wet. Mm -hmm. And then rinse it, roll it in a towel, and let it dry. So that, to me, is the minimum. That's the bathtub thing. Minimum processing. 
And then the other one, that third sample, I stitch around it really well and I go do a load of laundry. I mean, full on, you know, full cycle, dryer, full cycle, loaded towels and jeans and whatever. And what I'm now looking at is this particular fabric that I wove. What is it capable of? How far can I push it? And what I may end up doing is choosing someplace in the middle where I might end up ultimately processing this, or I might have to reslay because even out of the dryer, it's too sleazy. So your question was about, you know, I think there's this fear that people have that they need hand, they need drapiness. You know, I've made garments out of all kinds of things. Um, they the silhouette is important. You know, if you've got outerwear, I mean, I have a beautiful boiled wool fabric that I accidentally felted in the machine. Oops. That's <laughs> sort of another story. There's a video on that, actually. You know, and I thought I ruined it, but it actually was the best fabric I ever made because it, I pulled it out of the dryer and it didn't match what my expectations were. So there's that like, oh, no, I've ruined it. But then I actually looked at it. I took it to my guild that night. And they were like, this is amazing. This is the best thing you've ever done. And I started to really look at it and I had to agree with them. It was amazing. And I made a boiled wool coat out of it with an interlining and it's still the warmest thing I own and it's gorgeous. And I've had it now. I mean, I can't tell you how many years. So I don't think you can ruin a hand woven fabric. I mean, mm -hmm. some of your viewers may say, oh yeah, let me tell you about that time I did. <laughs> but did you really? Mm -hmm. You know, that's why I don't have a goal because then each part of the process as it comes out, I can course correct or redirect. I didn't have a plan anyway. But what you're talking about is really understanding and finishing and pushing the fabric and not the garment. I mean, that that's where you can mess it up. Right. And then of course you can mess it up. And, and this I've seen, especially... I don't see it in my workshops, or I didn't see it in my workshops, because I had good control over the steps that people took. And any problem fabric, I gave them an alternative route or a plan B or, okay, right now, stop. This is a loosely set chenille, and this is starting to fray too much on the edges, and we're going to now fuse a piece of Trico knit cut on the crosswise down each of the edges to really stabilize this and to hold it in place so you can get to the sewing part. And I've done all kinds of course corrections because I've seen it all. There's never been a fabric except the one I talked about, which was beautiful and she loved it. And she went back to Texas proudly wearing it. And I, that was a lot of years ago, so I don't know. She may be listening to this podcast at some point and recognize herself. Tell me how that worked out for you. <laughs> you know, but other than that very specific situation, mm -hmm. which would have been fine if she lived in the Northeast because... We would have just backed it and lined it, and it would have been fabulous. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times, the area that you live, you know, if you've got a boiled wool coat and, you know, you're in Florida, okay, so that's not going to work for you. But then typically you weren't working with wool anyway. You know, linen works great. I mean, there's all kinds of things. You know, I've had people make my tunic out of fine linen, other than the fact that it looks like you slept in it all the time. It's <laughs> beautiful, but it's mm -hmm. absorbent and it's easy to wear in the summer. And yeah, so there is a marriage here of a lot of components. And some of it is getting a pattern that fits you and then really looking at the silhouette and the fabric that you want to make that silhouette with. And that's why I kind of keep each, each of the processes separate. And I have a stash of handwoven fabric on my shelf downstairs. So when I'm in the mood to make something, I have a 50th high school reunion coming up. 
and I'm mulling over in my head, what can I make that's not ridiculous? Because I don't know that I want to stand out that much. But what can I make that celebrates who I am? Because I'm not going out and buying something because that's not me. I always work from whatever I've got. Even if I need a companion to something I don't have enough for, I'll go shopping in my closet and saying, you, you haven't been worn in a while. You're going to get cut up and become part of this piece. So I hold on to things because it's fabric. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I'm mulling over what possibilities do I have and what can I make and what patterns of mine can I combine to come up with this piece that I will enjoy wearing that celebrates who I am. It's a shame that I'm pretty sure that teacher who made you finger paint will not be there. That's too bad. I know. I know. And, you know, I, I had to really embrace who I was creatively and artistically. I know there were a lot of professors I had in art school that really, really hated my work, including my textile professor. We maintained a relationship over the years, and she always thought I was one of her success stories. And I wanted to say to her, but you hated my work. <laughs> she always thought it was too tight and too controlled. Mm -hmm. But I used those skills. I used that love of making things controlled to my advantage over the years. And I think that I've made some pretty outstanding pieces. There are times when I look back on something and go, damn, that was good. <laughs> and, and the other pieces, they have maybe not been runway pieces, but they work really good around town and serviceable. And I don't need to walk to my shop right every day and look like I'm a fashion plate on the cover of Handwoven Magazine. You know, I do want to fit into suburbia and be anonymous and indiscreet. And still, I have a bunch of handwoven tops mm -hmm. that, you know, people will say, oh, that's pretty. I actually, I was at the Shakespeare Theater volunteering and the costume designer for that current show was there and I had on a handwoven vest that I had made. Mm -hmm. And he went, wow, that's a great vest. And I didn't want to say, yeah, I dyed the yarn and it's one of my patterns and I, you know, and I wove the fabric all because it didn't matter. I was like, thanks. Thanks. <laughs> Enough said. So you've mentioned that you're working on your your wardrobe for this event, and I know that you're still putting together your blog and video stuff. What else? Not that you need anything else to be working on, but you know, now that you have more free time from not being on the road, what are you really sinking your teeth into these days? Well, this is actually funny. There's two things. One has to do with this and one doesn't. And this comes back to something I alluded to when we first started talking. I have all these looms and they have found me. I don't look for looms. I'm not interested. I'll, now, I will say that half of them happen to be small structos. Um, they find me those little eight inch metal ones. I think I did an EndNotes column. Yes. And, you know, they're, they're little things that are really, they're just adorable little looms. Pain in the neck to work on, especially when you would much prefer to be weaving in a physical way. Mm -hmm. But they get the job done. And I, 15 of them are reserved for a learn to weave class that periodically my daughter and I will do for a guild. They're set up and ready to go to teach a beginning group, which I'm getting away from, but my daughter is probably going to be picking that up. But I have 15 of them, 15, 16 of them set up with various structures, which are just pure play. I mean, some of them will have four, six yards of 20s over two. I won't live long enough to ever weave them off. 
<laughs> but people, friends come over and they sit and they try out a structure. I mean, there's all kinds of different things from I'm looking at shadow weave and honeycomb and crookbriga and Theo Mormon. And there's an overshot gamp and a deflected double weave gamp and a quigley and a double weave uh, sampler and hawk. And, you know, it's just all these standard structures that are really fun to play with. So they're all on those. But someone in my guild said to me one time, you have 64 looms. Are they all warped? And I went, oh, don't be ridiculous. And then I thought, I have 64 looms. Why aren't they all warped? <laughs> and this became a challenge. And all last year, took me probably a year-ish or more, I really focused on what did I want to play? What did I want to try out? So one of the difficulties for me, it's not a difficulty, but the challenges for me was that I spent a career focused on one thing. Yes, I did cool yardage and I did, made some cool clothes and I focused on being a teacher. Mm -hmm. It is very hard for me to not think of things as a teacher and to just play and see where something takes me without the goal of how can I teach this? How can I translate it to students? How can I incorporate it into what I already do? I don't need to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. And so that in itself is a challenge. But now my goal is to, all these looms are set up, is to systematically go through and weave them all off. And it may take the next couple of years. So three of the floor looms, the large floor looms, I have woven that yardage off, but left it on so the loom isn't naked until I think of something that I want to put on that loom. Mm -hmm. And then I'll cut the yardage off and wash it and it'll do its thing. So that in itself, I come out here and I pick a loom and I just weave. And it's interesting because each one is different and it's really important for me to, it's really important for me to see how it works and to get into the rhythm and follow the pattern and understand what's happening on the loom. Because each of them is a different kind of structure that I haven't really in-depth explored before. So that in itself, I mean, I'm loving the cool things you can do with summer winter on HS. Sure. Who knew? I would have never done a two-shuttle weave for yardage because for 10 yards, it's oh, slow. Right. But who cares? There is nothing now to stop me. Mm -hmm. There's nothing but, you know, I'm enjoying this. I'm enjoying this process. The other thing that is taking some time is that, uh, this is going to sound really funny. Years ago, I found that all the people that I was teaching, this whole fiber thing, the, everything about it is most people's hobby. This mm -hmm. is what gets them up in the morning, you know, after work, they come in, they did when they retire, they really get into it. This is what people love to do. Right. But for me, it's always been a business. Right. And I found that it's been really challenging to transition from it being a business. And again, that whole teacher mindset into just a place that I could play and this could be my hobby. So a couple of things. I live on a half an acre of property in northern New Jersey that has beautiful ponds and perennials and and this gorgeous vine-covered gazebo with some vines on there that I know I didn't plant. Where did they come <laughs> from? Plants will pop up and I'll be like, who are you? And now I'm starting to look at some of these plants that pop up and say, 
Can I forage you for basket making materials? Can I dye with you? Can I do botanical printing with you? Are you edible? We oui, can I make some kind of medicinal thing out of you? I don't have experience in any of these areas. Well, I have a smattering, you know, enough that I know what I don't know. <laughs> but I'm fascinated by what's out there as another source of raw materials. Last year, I had harvested a whole bunch of water irises, which had these really long stalks that I dried. And then I ended up making these set of mats. There's nothing to write home about, but I love using them every day because I wove these mats out of the water irises from my garden. It was based on a Rita Buchanan article right. years ago in Handwoven Magazine. And I pulled it out and I was like, well, if Rita can do this, I can do this. <laughs> but the other thing that I needed a hobby. So I ended up taking up music and I oh, loved playing the recorder because it wasn't hard for me to learn, mm -hmm. but I play with a group, which is hard for me to do because these are most of these are professional musicians. I have to work really hard to not embarrass myself and to really, you know, to play with the big guys. And I like being on the bottom. I like mm -hmm. being the one that has to struggle because I'm always the one in the teacher mode. Right. And I had to learn to play with people mm -hmm. because as the teacher... I'm in front of people. I'm guiding people. I'm teaching them what to do and how not to fall on your face. But when you're playing in an ensemble with a group of people, like especially in early music, mm -hmm. you have to listen. You have to listen to what they're doing and be part of that sound. And that's why I, will, I play the bass. I'm at the bottom. I want to be on the bottom. I don't want to be the soprano. I don't want <laughs> to be on the top. And it's been a humbling experience for me. And it's been a challenging experience for me, but one that I have actually embraced because it is so different than what I do here. Right. I needed to learn something new. So it is a hobby. And I have reminded, we have a new music director that just came in and she asked everybody to go around and tell, and everybody's talking about their multiple degrees in music and yada, yada, and they do this and they do that. And I'm like, yeah, so I, I needed a hobby. And so I have, other than piano at 10 years old, and so I know how to read music, I have no experience here. I just work really hard and I'm always prepared, <laughs> which is a joke in this group because Daryl has the music. She's always prepared. Yeah. So again, that perfectionism, mm -hmm. but not in a bad way. Perfectionism in a self-satisfying way, you know, because I'm the one that's prepared, you know, if people's music's falling all over the place. Mine's bound in a book. It's got markings. It's all ready to go. And I know my part well. In the back of my head, as I'm approaching 70, I look at the studio and I think it's one of the reasons I want to document it in a couple of videos, because I look at the studio and say, I don't know how many good years I have physically for weaving. And, you know, I've always felt like artists never retire. They just find a different way to be creative. And I went through a year and a half ago, I broke my shoulder. And that was scary. I fell, as people do as they get older. And that was scary because I was incapacitated five weeks with my arms strapped against me. I still figured out how to weave and how to dye and, you know, D-Y-E and do all these things but I had to learn to do them in a different way, mm -hmm. which was very humbling mm -hmm. and made me think a lot. And I look at all of this and I say, okay, I've built all this. Where do I see myself in five years? Where do I see myself in 10 years? You know, can we even imagine that? 
And do I want to begin to make preparations? If I had to pick one lumen here, what would be my favorite one of the 64? And I struggle with that, but I think I've made my decision. You know, I don't think that will come to that. I mean, my daughter is very much into this studio as well. So, you know, I share this with her. But I think all of us at some point really address our creative longevity Mm-hmm. or lack of it, and are always looking for ways that we can stay creative and thoughtful and challenged, but it might have to come in a different way. Mm-hmm. So while I have the energy and the stamina and the skill set and all these looms, I'm enjoying pursuing various structures that I never had time to play with, but I don't know where I'll ultimately end up. And that mm-hmm. is, again, the journey and not the goal. And so, so far, my life has been built on process and journey. And it's kind of like I eat popcorn and drink wine and sit back and see how it's all going to turn out. <laughs> I love it. It's like, it's like you're making the movie of your life and also enjoying the movie of your life. Yeah. And I will tell you, being able to write the blog post, looking back at articles that I've written, I wrote for 35 issues straight for Handwoven. So there's wow. a huge body of work just in that. Mm-hmm. And... Um, And and I have the YouTube videos now and I can put whatever I want up there and nobody, you don't have to watch it. It's free. Mm -hmm. And I can document this and then look back and be really proud of what I've done and the legacy that I've left. And so now when people write in, I go, just go watch my video. (laughs) I thought a lot about what I wanted to say and it's all there. (laughs) And it's it's all there. Hey, it's free. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you got to buy the patterns, but the directions for the patterns, they're all free. And then the other thing that uh, I spent a year doing after I, and there will be more videos. We're planning mm-hmm. more. It's, I had to get my daughter through her second degree and into the field where she is working now in the animal sciences. But I spent a year indexing those 80 videos. So there's an index that you can look. It's on my website under extras mm-hmm. and you can find either a topic that you're looking for. It'll tell you what video and time code, or you can look at a video and it'll tell you what's in it and the time codes, which was important because I had no idea what I <laughs> recorded and when, and people would ask me, I go, oh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's in one of them. I think it was winter. <laughs> yeah. So th- so that was really helpful. I had a couple of people help me with it, but mostly I just watched my videos over and over and over again to try to nailed down time codes and subject matter. And now, of course, if I add to my videos, I have to update that. You know, I'm at this wonderful crossroads in my life where that part of my career on the road teaching is done. Now Mm -hmm. I'm trying to reprogram my brain that I don't have to be a teacher anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, there are new people coming on to do this. And if I've left them information on my experience for them to use... Have at it. You know, your approach is quite different in some ways from Anita Luvera Mayer, but some of what you're saying reminds me of that. And she said at one point, from here on, every major outfit that I have, I will make myself. Yes. But she po- called herself the polyester kid. <laughs> Anita called me one day. Oh, my God, I will never forget this. She called me one day. I answered the phone. This is back before cell phones. And we, had, you know, I answered the phone. And, and she says, Daryl? I said, yeah. She goes, Anita Mayer here. I was like, really? She goes, I have a problem. I'm thinking, okay. Okay. (laughs) She says, I need to cut my fabric and I'm terrified. (laughs) 
I, you know, to this day, we we still joke about. I haven't seen Anita in a number of years. I love that woman. She was kind of responsible for getting me into the national circuit because I had applied to Convergence in Atlanta and I was rejected. But nobody knew who I was outside the Northeast. And Anita said to me, if you ever want a recommendation, I'll write it for you. And it opened the doors. And, you know, the rest is history. But I've taken workshops with her. I've always adored her philosophy. I have all her little books. Mm, And she has helped guide me through adulthood. You know, I when I lost my husband, I, I thought of her and I always thought of her philosophy and how she managed to navigate. And, you know, I am grateful for the Anita Mayers in the world who came before. And I hope I can leave a legacy of things to think about for the next generation to come, because it's really interesting watching the next group come up. Yeah. And, you know, and how, how they find their place. And I applaud them. And I'm there in the background if you have a question, but you can do this. You don't need me. Daryl, thank you so much for being here. I love talking to you. Thank you for asking me, and it is always a pleasure. Thanks to Trinway Silks and the Anson County Fiber Arts Festival for sponsoring this episode. Thank you for listening to the Long Thread Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate the show and leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Thanks again.